I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Um, we've got a big show planned today. We've got a future interview later with Canopus Networks, uh, talking about uh, how we can make those big, nasty, rich OTTs pay the costs of those skid telcos who, of course, have to face CapEx bills of billions of dollars a year. Um, we'll also be talking to Simon Ducks, our chief editor, about two interesting companies, Edge Centres and Spirit Tech Group. But first up, we have Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Okay. Now, you sat through a day's worth of hearings about the telco sector security reforms this week, uh, mainly so we didn't have to. Um, tell us all about what went on. Well, I drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> Look, I, I love sitting through a good parliamentary hearing, as you know. Yeah, so it's essentially at the moment our Parliament's uh, Security and Intelligence Committee is conducting a statutory review of the TSSR. But the interesting thing is the timing where, at the same time, it's also reviewing the uh, expansion of the Security of Critical Infrastructure Bill. So, and obviously, there's kind of like a bit of a crossover with those two bills. So, essentially, the, the new SOCI bill would basically extend kind of TSSR-like obligations to a whole range of sectors um, considered critical, including including Telco. So essentially, uh, Confluence, Optus, and Telstra all appeared at this hearing and basically said, don't give us like two sets of kind of overlapping regulatory regimes, two sets of compliance, all that kind of thing. So really, they're looking at some way, they're, they're pushing for the government to either exempt them from SOCI or to find a way to kind of like you you know, use TSSR as the implementation of SOCI for the telco, um, the telco sector. So the key thing about SOCI is it, it is switched on sector by sector and its actual implementation is expected to vary. So I, I expect probably what will happen, we'll probably end up with a situation um, hopefully where they, they have SOCI and they say, well, this... For the telco sector, this is implemented by the TSSR regime. Okay, um, moving on. Uh, it's a little, little known fact in the industry that the telecommunications industry ombudsman doesn't just handle um, customer complaints, but also land access disputes um, regarding telcos and, and regarding people who... who um, perhaps own that land. And uh, there was a big case involving the Queensland government and you tuned in to the, uh, to the uh, judgment. Yeah, so the, uh, the, um, the, the Queensland Department, uh, Transport Department has gone uh, uh, litigation mad. I don't think they can sue me for defamation for saying that. But, uh, but basically, they've, been, um, they've challenged two uh, TIO land access decisions. The case has both revolved around bridges that are operated by the transport department. And essentially, Optus wanted to haul fibre through the bridges um, using existing pits and basically argued that this was like a maintenance activity and like filed a maintenance notice with the department, which the department rejected. So it went to TIO kind of arbitration. TIO made a decision in favour of Optus, and that was now the kind of subject of these two legal cases. So um, essentially, the, the outcome was the Queensland Department lost and the TIO's decisions were upheld, um, which is obviously good news from Optus's perspective. I, I think the interesting thing is here, actually, while those two cases were pending, though, the Queensland Department's actually filed a third case uh, revolving around, again, revolving around Optus Fiber Hall, I believe, although um, I, I'm still pulling the court documents on that. So it is a land access decision, though. So it's kind of like it's not clear whether they're going to kind of keep pursuing that case or they're just going to go home and lick their wounds. Okay, thank you very much for that update, Rowan. Cheers. 
Comms for Comms Day Live. I have Simon Ducks, the Chief Editor of Comms Day with us. Welcome, Simon. Hello there, Graham. Okay. Um, you interviewed two interesting companies this week that aren't normally high up on the radar. First things first, a company called Edge Centers. Tell us what they're all about. Yeah, so we uh, broke the story about edge centers uh, building a number of off-grid data centers um, all around uh, regional Australia. Uh, very interesting model. They're turning the uh, power supply uh, model on its head for data centers and are actually using uh, batteries and solar as the primary uh, energy source and then having the uh, grid as the uh, backup source. So very much turning it on its head. Now, uh, John Eves, the CEO there, has been uh, hellishly busy, uh, got a number of plate spinnings. Uh, uh, so they announced a couple of things. One was that they've tied up with uh, Everest Infrastructure Partners. Now, uh, we don't know those guys too much uh, in Australia. Uh, they are US uh, Tower Co, essentially, and they're managing more than 4,000 sites in in the United States and uh, they quietly set up an ANZ uh, operation in February and uh, this is the first uh, sort of announcement if you like uh, we imagine that they're also looking at a lot of the Tower Co assets uh, such as Optus uh, and what's happening with InfraCo as well so we'll definitely be keeping an eye on them but uh, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be sticking uh, uh, multi-purpose, uh, meaning uh, multi-technology, uh, carrier neutral towers at all of edge centres, data centres. Now that's quite nice because in most regional towns, uh, typically uh, your, your, your mast is uh, at, attached to the Telstra exchange essentially. So this is going to give other carriers and service providers options in the places where they're starting to build out. So quite an interesting move. Uh, the other thing that uh, John uh, told me that uh, Edge is looking at doing was uh, they're looking at building two Edge data centers in Japan. Now, it, it's quite interesting when you've just got your uh, first site up and running in Grafton, you've got your Dubbo site well underway, that you're suddenly looking at Japan. But, you know, I asked him if he was spreading himself a bit thin. And essentially, it's, it's all a question of timing. Uh, uh, the Japanese local government are facing civ similar uh, data sovereignty issues, and there is an immediate opportunity uh, with a partner that uh, they've signed up with, uh, Alan Kay Associates, uh, to actually build a, a couple of smaller data centers and address some of those needs uh, for things like uh, local government. One of them's uh, fairly close to Narita Airport as well. So uh, that's going to be one to watch, a very different uh, kettle of fish to, uh, compared to the sort of facility that Air Trunks uh, got in Tokyo as well. And uh, the other key thing that uh, uh, John told me was that they've just finished building a figure of eight uh, backhaul network um, using a, uh, a particular, well, a, a couple of partners, uh, 10 gigabits per second, uh, upgradable to 100 uh, gigabits per second, stretching from Brisbane down to Melbourne. And uh, the interesting thing on that is that what he is aiming to do is to try and match metro pricing uh, for uh, anybody that's actually signing up for them. That's going to be quite interesting uh, and that could be quite uh, disruptive uh, in terms of uh, people looking at bandwidth and backhaul uh, in the regions. Okay. Okay, um, moving on. Uh, you also caught up with Spirit uh, this week. Um, formerly known as Spirit Telecom, 
uh, they're going through a bit of a transformation right now. Yeah, very much. Uh, Solokutsky uh, has uh, really, and his management team have really changed uh, the model of Spirit from a high-speed internet seller right through to an integrated IT services supplier for the small to medium enterprise. And interestingly, on some of the acquisitions, he's moving now up into the mid-market as well. Uh, So quite interesting on the back of that. Um, As a result of this enterprise push, uh, they announced a little while ago that they're um, selling off their smaller consumer business. And uh, he uh, announced that uh, they have around 20 bidders looking at that. And uh, the other key interesting thing that came out of uh, his Investor Day uh, discussions was that they're signing their most strategic and largest white label deal uh, fairly soon as well. Uh, He couldn't name the company, but he said it's an ASX listed managed services company. And uh, that particular company is going to use his SpiritX data services aggregation platform, uh, which is essentially uh, an online marketplace for buying and selling uh, uh, data services. Uh, It's quite a neat little solution. And uh, that's going to be integrated into that particular company's sales platform. So uh, in terms of numbers, uh, uh, we didn't hear anything because it's just a Q3 update uh, around uh, profit. But uh, he had his uh, 10th straight quarter of recurring revenue growth, uh, which is uh, quite neat. And uh, also uh, good monthly uh, recurring revenue figures as well. Uh, total uh, revenues for the quarter were at 35.7 million, uh, which is up 150% year on year. But it's all, not all uh, amazing news as far as the market's concerned, because after the market update, uh, the uh, share price actually uh, fell 10% and there was a lot of uh, transactions. So interestingly, uh, some investors have potentially seen something that they're not necessarily that happy with. But uh, when you look at the uh, way that the operational side of the business is coming, there's some really good uh, shoots about the fact that uh, he said that they've managed to integrate 10 of 13 companies' uh, back office systems onto uh, single platforms now. And uh, I think he mentioned that uh, they now can uh, turn around any acquisition within six to nine months and fully uh, integrate them into their um, own systems. And of course, you know, that brings itself uh, benefits on margins as well. So in the SMB sector now, he suggested they have around 10,500 uh, customers across Australia. In the mid market, they're looking at around two to 300 clients are uh, from schools through to hospitals as well and you know they're selling up the stack now Uh, he mentioned uh, quite interestingly talking about when they were selling high speed uh, internet services 12 to 18 months ago the contract per month uh, value was about five to eight hundred dollars and now he said that's more like anything from ten thousand dollars a month up to a hundred thousand dollars a month so you can see that evolution of the company uh, is quite interesting. One of the other things he mentioned is that uh, they're selling a lot of MBN uh, Ethernet product, uh, which is interesting because we're getting that from a number of uh, the key uh, companies out there. Uh, Both TPG and Focus are also claiming that they're selling it very well as well. So that is obviously starting to shift the way enterprises are connecting themselves up. And uh, essentially on... um, uh, I think I mentioned the fact about he's uh, six to nine months, but I, I think watching what he's going to be doing, it's going to be interesting to watch the profit figures when they get uh, towards their year end. 
Okay, thanks very much for that update, Simon. You're listening to Commerce Day Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Now, for the past few months, um, we've obviously been living with a new media code that dictates the terms between legacy media companies and Google and Facebook over payment for the inclusion of news to their, on their services. I wrote a column about this last September in Comms Day, where I basically put forward the proposition, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, I suggested that the ACCC should look at another area um, in the communication sector that reeks of power imbalance, and that's that between telcos and OTTs. Uh, I pointed out in my column on the 9th of September, there's about 15 terabits per second or so of traffic surging through the NBN every night. About 60% of that is accounted for by the likes of Netflix, YouTube, Disney+, Plus, Stan, and Foxtel. And uh, it's, it's RSPs who foot the entire bill for the uh, connectivity virtual charge and the overage charges in particular that accrue on that when they underestimate demand. Demand which they have very little influence in setting because a, a games developer decides unilaterally when it's going to update something. A video stream company decides unilaterally when it's going to launch eight episodes of a new 4K classic on the market. And the RSPs can't do anything about it. Now, the RSPs, or neither the RSPs or NBN Co. can really be said to be doing well out of this arrangement. NBN Co., of course, is paying off billions of dollars of accrued debt and losses, while RSPs are finding their fixed margins slashed to zero. This clearly is not a sustainable state. Now, last week... Um, two very, very knowledgeable chaps, Fijay Sivaraman and Kevin Block of Canopus Networks, penned an op-ed for Comms Day on this very, very topic. And it took my argument a step further and proposed some solutions. So I'm joined by Kevin and Vijay today. Welcome to Comms Day Live. Thanks, Ben. Okay, now, for, first of all, I'd like you gentlemen to describe the problem before we start talking about the solutions. What do you see as the problem that has to be solved here? I'll go first, Graham. First of all, thanks very much for this interview. Um, I think the problem boils down to the fact that all of us are enjoying a lot of online services and somebody has to pay for it. There is infrastructure that has to be built across Australia, whether it's the NBN on fixed whether it's Elstra, TPG, Optus on, on mobile, it costs billions and billions of dollars to provide the beautiful services that we've received and, and has been exacerbated by COVID. Now, the industry numbers are not looking good. I, I think you reported on this in, in one of your uh, publications that there's a 60% decline in industry. That's overall industry return on investment from 9.7% in 2016 to 3.8% in 2019. The fixed revenues have declined by around 13%, as have mobile revenues. Now, all the lines are going downwards for the telcos, the service providers, the people that we are dependent on for all of these fantastic business and consumer services that we've been enjoying in the last several years. That is not sustainable. That's the problem. Maybe I'll, uh, um, I'll add in, uh, Vijay here, and, and thanks, Graham, for having us on the show. Um, from a technical perspective, another way to state that problem is these pipes um, that 
the network operators run are seen as dumb pipes and it's left to the content providers to fill them with whatever they want. And really there's very little control, so to speak, on that because they really don't pay for it. So there's nothing stopping in Netflix from upping the resolution on a, on a video stream or from Google inventing a new congestion control mechanism that could potentially give them an advantage over a traditional PCP. So there's really no controls in place for that, which I see as a problem for the industry. Okay, well, let's, let's go. Th- you've, you've proposed three um, solutions. Let's take them in turn. Your first approach is to charge OTTs based on tonnage or bit rate. T- take me through that proposition. Um, well, actually, that was inspired by yourself, Graham, in your article where you mentioned that, you know, as an example, the overage charges could be passed on uh, to the to the content provider, to the OTTs. Um, I, I believe this proposal has some merit. It's, it's very simple. It's just based on tonnage. Um, so it's very easy to understand. Um, uh, however, I think there are some kind of, uh, let's say, you know, limitations to this approach where really, um, firstly, it's, it's very Australia-centric because this whole construct of overage is obviously very, uh, you know, uh, very specific to Australia. But also, it kind of gives the feeling that OTTs get nothing in return. I mean, they're just suddenly having to pay for something that they didn't have to pay for yesterday. They get no better service or any such thing. And it really doesn't put any, you know, distinction on the value of a bit. You know, if, if it's a game download, the value per bit could be a lot different to, to actual gameplay, where the value per bit is actually very different. So, so I, I, I laud the approach as being some, you know, very simple, easy to understand, possibly easy to implement. But I can see there might be some hesitation on the part of the OTTs to, to go with such a model. Kevin, okay. did you want to add anything? Sorry. No, keep going. That's option one. Okay, so option two is to upsell OTTs from free ride to pay lanes. Talk us through that. Right. Now, this has been kind of one of my pet topics for quite a few years, and I've been uh, giving it some thought. Is, and, and firstly, this uh, approach is, is not just applicable to Australia. It's applicable to, to any part of the globe, really, which is um, the concept of actually having a fast lane, right, to put it very simply, which is... Uh, hey, this is premium content. I really want my user to have a great experience. So I would like to upgrade the content to business class, you know, to the fast lane. And you've got to pay for the privilege. So in some sense, it's a, it's a model that, that there is something in the OTTs for in return. And, and, and the other important thing here is that they actually have a choice whether they want to exercise uh, the option to use the fast lane or not. So in, in so I believe it, it gives OTTs an incentive to kind of play along with this model because they get that, that experience. They get the flexibility and the choice when they want to upgrade and when they don't want to upgrade a traffic stream to that fast lane. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think that that might make it a little bit more palatable. Um, underlying it is the technology piece, which is the ability to actually negotiate putting things onto fast lanes. Um, and I believe that problem is very solvable. Um, I mean, um, networks are getting programmable. There's a lot of software that's driving networks these days. So crafting the right set of APIs and, and programming your network on the fly to move traffic across lanes is actually very, very doable with today's technology. Um, and it also creates a, a whole set of uh, interesting business models on top of it. You know, you could charge a micro payment for moving a specific traffic stream from one lane to another lane. Uh, you could do some kind of a policy-based bulk kind of arrangement to move them and, and charge based on that. Um, and the other beautiful thing of this framework, which, which we have actually given quite a bit of thought to, is you can actually express your policies for these lanes in very, very rigorous uh, manner. 
and you can actually uh, even um, audit them and see if the operator was respecting to the policies they put in place uh, or how they advertise their various lanes as to what that lane offers you is actually being enforced or not, which I can tell you is a very non-trivial problem. Even monitoring if a network today is neutral or not is very, very difficult from the outside. So, so our framework really tries to address these various angles that the stakeholders, the OTTs, the network operators, the consumers, and the regulators might have. And we believe it's, it's technologically doable and it does create some new interesting kind of, uh, uh, you know, opportunities to create some business models around it. Okay. Now, your third um, proposed uh, solution or approach to this issue is to charge OTTs for direct connectivity to the MBN, which I guess is the most radical one. Talk us through that. Yeah, so look, why not? Uh, I, I really am, am, I must say, proud of the fact that we have a nationalized access network in Australia. Um, and it is actually a very unique environment. And, and I've written about it, you know, in the early days itself. And, and my thinking is, you know, I, in, in 5G, for example, you see a lot of edge compute being talked about, bringing content close to the user. So it makes me think, hey, why not with the NBM? It's an access network, it's national. What if OTTs were given the option to connect directly into that access network and be able to get their traffic to the, to the users at very low latency? It creates um, an incentive for OTTs to do it because they can put, for example, cloud gaming um, you know, directly into the access network. Um, so they get some return on the uh, you know, value for what they are putting in um, and they can be charged for it. Um, and uh, and I think for RSPs, um, you know, it, it might help offload some of the traffic off the network um, and therefore, you know, um, not incur all those overage kind of charges. Um, I believe the technical aspects of it are quite surmountable. But of course, uh, you know, one would have to see if, if this is within the limit of the NBN or not. But, but I believe all those problems are actually surmountable. Happy if Kevin, you want to add anything to that? The only comment I'd make is that and, and this might be slightly different from the media precedent that we've seen, that in our industry, the technical solutions are there. It's not like we've got to invent something new. There are a range of options. We've put, put forward three um, that are quite doable. Um, so I don't think it's the technology that's the obstacle here. It's now really coming to some agreement that things need to change. Okay, now you just... You just mentioned there the technology is possible, and I guess that's where the company that you're both associated with comes in, and that's uh, Canopus Networks. Can you talk me through uh, what you do there, and, and I guess where your perspectives on this have been informed in terms of your own um, technology development and your own work in the past? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> as an academic and a researcher who's been working in the field of networking for 20 years, I was extremely excited by the whole softwareization of networks. And, and I've done several projects funded by Google and others in the Open Networking Foundation. And we've started realizing once you make networks programmable, you can do a whole lot of stuff, which was completely impossible before, before, because before you had to go to a vendor, you had to convince them to change their software. Unless you can pay them millions of dollars, they won't listen to you and, and so on. So now with programmable networks, you can get a one rack unit switch costing like less than 10,000 Australian dollars, which can do terabits per second, and it's fully programmable, fully. You can write any code you want into it, right? So that made us think, let's explore some use cases. And out of curiosity, we built a whole set of use cases. And the one that we found had the most legs was in various conversations with network operators, we realized they actually know very little about what's happening on their network. 
Um, and so we built a first cut and we, we showed all the, you know, the Netflix streams, the YouTube streams, the gaming streams, the conferencing streams. And I remember uh, one of the telco execs uh, from a large telco came and looked at it and he said, Netflix shows us to me every quarter. I would love to see that before I go to that meeting. So that just said, ah, oh, maybe we're onto something here. And then we incorporated it as a company. And our mission really is to show network operators everything that's happening on their network because uh, to be able to, you know, help get their customers to deliver a good experience to their customers, they need to know what's happening. I mean, there's no way I can support you if you're having a spinning wheel on your Netflix or a glitch in your game if I don't know a, that you're watching a movie or playing a game. B, what other traffic is going on? Is it there's, there's your Windows machine is actually doing an update? Or is it that the CDC is under provision? Or is the home Wi-Fi bad? Or is there appearing congestion? Um, so lack of visibility is the first step, is the, is the problem. That unless we tackle visibility, we can't really deliver the experience. And, and I believe, the, as, as Kevin said, the mission of the network is really to deliver an experience. It's not to deliver just speed. So, so let me add to that, um, one of the things that Canopus therefore does by providing that visibility at the application level is enable the, the operator to work out the value-based services versus the commodity services. And the interesting thing, and this is one of the other papers that we've written in terms of broadband, we, we believe we, you know, broadband is, is really entering a second generation. The first generation was just about speed. Tell me, how many bits per second can I get? And we've all matured in, in our usage. And as we put in the paper, buying broadband today, you, you, is, you cannot buy broadband as we did it in the past. If you just measure it on bits per second, it's like buying a car based on kilometers per hour. And I'll give you one very tangible example. Gaming doesn't need a lot of bandwidth, but it does need low latency. Video, on the other hand, needs a lot of bandwidth, but it needs particular requirements in terms of buffering, um, et cetera. So all these different services that we take for granted uh, require a, a different ca characteristic within the network to optimize the user experience. And that ca characteristic isn't just bits per second. And what Canopus does um, at very high speeds, in fact, the higher speeds, the more it sets itself apart. And by the way, it does it on a fully encrypted uh, transport uh, is it really shines a light for the operator on who's doing what in the network and therefore what do they need to do to optimize their network and also uh, what are the premium services that they can provide. One of the interesting things about, about your company, because we've reported uh, um, on, on this side of what you do in the past, is that you've identified um, something which I've instinctively felt for a long time. And that is that we, we have this national and perhaps even international obsession with speed rankings, you know, the, the highest average bit rate per line, which, as you, as you point out, does not describe the full spectrum of broadband experience. But more, more importantly, I think, we've, we've been captured by this. We've been held hostage by this sort of almost silly race to the top in terms of that metrics, perhaps to the detriment of other important aspects of the broadband experience. And do you feel that that's the case in Australia and that it's time that we educated people that there's, there is more to broadband than the highest possible speed? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, look, I have a lot of gripes with speed, and I think uh, you've already pointed out a few of them. But 
I mean, I, I can list so many things. It, it's a spot measurement. Um, you know, it, it generates a very synthetic burst of traffic. Just blast away for a few seconds and see what gets through. Um, it's completely non-representative of the applications that are out there. Um, it, it really creates problems at high speeds. If you want to test a gigabit service, you're really clogging a gigabit, which might be fine on your ABC, but by the time it hits the CBC, oh my God, you know, you've bumped 100 other people off the CBC to get your speed test through. Um, there, there's just so many problems with speed tests. And, and I must say, you know, with a PhD student, we did a kind of a three-year project um, working with Google's MLab data. We analyzed 70 million plus speed test results. And we found that there's a lot of noise in the data. Noise can come from little things like which variant of TCP do you use. It depends on how many threads you open to do a speed test. If I open five threads versus eight threads, I'll get different results. So that's noise, right? So uh, what about the clock that you use on the, on the machine that's doing the test? And what are the interfaces? If I do my speed test with my machine connected to a 100 meg interface versus a gig interface, there will be differences. Um, and the, the, all of these I call noise. And often the difference across providers was actually lower than the noise inherent in the test itself. And we tried a lot of data analytics techniques to denoise the data. Oh, we employed a data scientist. We tried to do you know, uh, multivariate causal inference, a lot of very sophisticated techniques, but we could not get enough confidence that the speed test could be denoised enough that it was truly representative of the relative ranking of the ISPs. And when I look at the speed test reports that come out in Australia as well, the difference is kind of sometimes in the 0 0.1, 0.2 uh, range um, as a fraction of the plan speed, which if you translate to absolute numbers is so small, kilobits per second, hundreds of kilobits per second, that I really cannot believe that's less than the noise inherent in the data itself. So I personally think speed tests are a, are a very poor measure. And also in the end, what does it mean as a user? You know, if somebody is giving me 99.3 rather than 99.1% of my plan speed, does it actually make any difference? to my browsing or to my conferencing or to my gaming, I actually don't know. So, so that's why hence our piece, which says that we really believe experience is what matters because if you start comparing operators on, look, I get you know, uh, three game glitches per hour on this provider versus only one on this provider, that suddenly becomes a lot more meaningful to me as a gamer than a percentage on the speed of the plans. Right, so that, can I, that's my point of view. Yeah, can I also add, I think inadvertently to this fixation of speed has caused, and excuse the pun, it's caused gaming within the industry. So operators can do all sorts of funny things to make their numbers look good, right? Which is not good for anybody. Secondly, there's no, you know, if you look at, say, Netflix, um, you know, they've done some tremendous things in terms of compression technology, a whole bunch of things that 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 actually is, is quite quite good for the for the end end user. Um, how do we reward that? How do we help them, right? How do we incent the over the tops to work harder on delivery, not just, you know, the content? Um, so again, if all it is is brute force bandwidth, uh, I think it's causing some some anomalies. Let's just say in in the supply side that are unintended consequences. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you both for joining us today. And I'd, I'd like to commend you both for being thought leaders on a topic where a lot of people are quite uh, mute on some of these issues. And of course, you don't get progress if you don't challenge the status quo. So thank you to both of you for doing so today.
express this on, on, on behalf of the industry because it's a, a really important uh, issue for Australia. Okay, terrific. Thanks once again. Thank you. That's it for Comstay Live this week. See you next time.